1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. group. by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Bonnie Anderson about her biography of the 19th century activist and reformer, Ernestine Rose, entitled The Rabbi's Atheist Daughter. Ernestine Rose... International Feminist Pioneer. Bonnie, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Mark.
2: I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Well, I'm a retired historian, and in the 70s, I got interested in women's history. I basically put uh, the two halves of my life together, my personal side, where I was becoming a a women's rights person, and uh, doing history itself. And my first book was done with my best friend, and it's still in print. It's called A History of Their Own, Women in Europe, From Prehistory to the Present. And my second book was called Joyous Greetings, the first international women's movement. And that's where I encountered Ernestine Rose. And I became fascinated by her. So that's why I wrote a book about her.
2: Why was it you chose to write a book about her now, though? I mean, was there, uh, because it seems seems like that was a project that you might have done in the 1970s, and yet you uh, did it uh, a few years later.
0: Well, I had to learn women's history. There really was very little published on the subject. And in fact, when Judy Zinser and I were first writing our book, you know, we got terrible remarks. You know, people would say, oh, a broad view of history, ha ha, or a history of diapers. And uh, we really learned so much in doing it. And that's where I first encountered her. Uh, the only book that existed about her in those years was uh, a biography that had been written in the nineties. 1950s it was very lively it didn 't have any footnotes and it was sponsored by a Jewish women 's organization. And what prompted me to do it now um, was I was looking for another project after Joyous Greetings, and uh, a woman I got to meet did an anthology of Rose's speeches and writings. And I thought, gee, that makes it so much easier to do. I can build on that. (laughs) And I was at a wonderful dinner party of uh, encouraging feminists in, I think it was 08. And we went around the table and there were people like Vivian Gornick and, uh, you know, fairly well-known people. Uh, what are you doing now? And I said, I'm thinking of writing a biography of Ernestine Rose. And they all said, oh, do it. So that's how I got into it. And I began my research really in uh,
2: 2010. One of the things I thought was so especially interesting about your book is the degree to which you chronicle the evolution of her ideas. And you begin the book by talking about her early years in her household in Poland and how it was that she came to be this incredibly uh, engaged and, and learned uh, individual. I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps explain a bit about her uh, family and uh, how it was that she came to be this very, uh, active and inquisitive
1: intellectual
0: I'd be delighted to but first let me tell you there is a prologue which is her big speech in 1851 because one of the issues I had writing a biography was no one knew who she was so I couldn't call it Ernestine Rose that's why it's called the rabbi's atheist daughter and as I say the prologue introduces you to her in you know at the height of her career But I was just fascinated with her early life. Uh, um, And uh, my first. Uh, big research trip was to Poland uh, to see what I could find out. And I found out remarkably little. Uh, At some point, I think I want to do an essay on negative research on what I didn't find. But um, I uh, went to the city that she was born in, Piotrkow Trybunalski. And it was very interesting because I don't speak Polish, but in Poland, when I would say where I was going, I would sometimes say Piotrkow, and I would always be corrected. And they would say, no, Piotrkow, Tribunalski, because it was the site of a tribunal of the Polish Supreme Court in the 18th century. And that ended up being very important for her development. She always prized justice and the law. And I think if she'd been born in the 20th century, she would have been an attorney. So... uh, The one building that still exists from her day was the synagogue in her time, which is unusual because so much of Poland was overrun by the Nazis and buildings were destroyed. And when you go there, it's the central public library. And if you walk in, there's a big bulletin board on the main floor and it's filled with stuff about Ernestine Rose. So um, I found out that... uh, we don't know her original Hebrew names. We don't know her parents' first names. We're not even sure of her mother's maiden name. But we know her birth date, which is in uh, 1810 in January. We know she was the only child of a rabbi. So she was raised, I mean, every Jew was basically orthodox, what we'd call orthodox today then. And uh, this, the stories she tells about her childhood are really the only source. But she was an amazingly truthful person, so I, I learned to believe her. And she said that when she was five, she liked to say, I was a rebel at the age of five, she was sent to a Hebrew school and she was punished for something that she didn't know was against the rules. And she went home and complained to her father and he took her out of the school and decided to educate her herself himself. So uh, that meant reading uh, the Old Testament, the first five books, and studying them, questioning them. And she began to question. And he said to her, little girls should not ask questions. But little boys were supposed to ask questions. And she was in um, a position that many early feminists were. That is, they were the children of fathers who either... Did, they were either her only child or there was no boy in the house. So her father treated her kind of like a surrogate son. I mean, girls were not supposed to read Hebrew. They learned Yiddish, and they were not supposed to study the Bible. But he taught her both. And she said when he told her that she shouldn't ask questions, that set her on the path to becoming a woman's rights person. When she was about 12 she decided to question a saying in her town. And whenever I speak to older Jewish groups, I ask if anyone has heard this saying, and no one ever has, it was that you should keep the Sabbath unto the breaking of a piece of straw. You know, you're not supposed to do any work at all on the Sabbath in traditional Jewish culture. So she goes into the dining room, and she has a piece of straw, and she says, God, I don't want to offend you but if you don't want me to break this piece of straw, send me a sign. And nothing happens. And so she breaks the piece of straw. And she said that that was her break with religious belief. But she goes through the motions of being, uh, you know, an obedient Jewish daughter for the next couple of years because she loved her father and she didn't want to, you know, cause trouble. And then when she's 15, her mother dies and leaves her an inheritance. Now, again, this was unusual because normally a girl would not be left an inheritance, but she's the only child. And her father, and this was standard in uh, the Jewish community at that point, betroths her to a man that she... I mean, she betrothed her to a man. She didn't want to marry this man, and the father wrote a contract that if she didn't go through at the wedding, the man would get the money. And that was unusual. So she said that she throws herself weeping at her fiancé's feet and begs him to release her. And he said, Why should I release you? You're beautiful and rich. And he then goes to a district court in the city of Kalish, which was about 60 miles from Pyotrkov Tribunalsky, to uh, put through his case. And that's when she shows uh, a kind of gumption that really characterized her throughout her life. She hires a sleigh, it's in January, and she rides alone to the court the sleigh breaks down in the middle of the night and the sleigh driver says, well, we can wait till tomorrow, can't we? And she said, no, the case is heard tomorrow. Go and get help. And she describes sitting alone in a Polish forest covered with snow, hearing packs of wolves howl in the distance. The driver returns, and she makes it to court the next morning. Now, I couldn't find the records, but Polish history has been so turbulent that so many documents have been lost. She argued her case, and for reasons we don't know, it may have been anti-Semitism, it may have been they were impressed with her, they give her the money. And she goes home and she finds that her father has remarried, which you were supposed to do in the Jewish community, but to a girl her own age. And she said she realized she could not get on with a stepmother who was 17 years old. And she gives her father some of the money and she leaves her home, Poland and Judaism forever.
2: That point you made about gumption, I thought you underscored very nicely by explaining the context of the times. You describe, for example, when she leaves Poland, her first destination is Berlin, and you described it wasn't necessarily unusual for women to travel per se, but the idea of a respectable woman traveling was unusual. And, and it really pointed to the the challenge of not just the physical journey, but the idea that she was a... You know, a, a respectable woman, educated, and how she had to travel and also maintain her respectability, and it spoke to this the the, the various world fields that she'd have to navigate over the yes. course of her entire life.
0: Yes, well, a lot of, like the city of Berlin, for instance, didn't want women entering alone because they assumed that they were prostitutes. So. Um, She certainly must have carried herself with dignity. And then her entry to Berlin is a second example of her backbone, uh, because the the rule was for, as they called them, Israelites, that they had to have a a Berlin uh, magistrate speak on their behalf or put up a bond that they would not, you know, do anything terrible. And she says to the customs agent, I don't need a bond. I'm not going to do anything wrong. And he said, well, then the only person who can admit you is the king. And this was the king of Prussia, Friedrich Wilhelm III. And um, again, I couldn't find any records of this. Uh, You know, the, the, the king had an audience every week with people who could just come and speak to him. But records were not kept of those meetings, but she describes her encounter. And it's right in tune with with the way he acted in these years. He was very uh, concerned to convert Jews to Christianity, and he belonged to a society to do that. So her account is that she pleads with the king, says, I want to stay here. And he said, why don't you become a Christian? And she says, Why should I embrace the branch when I have rejected the trunk? And I thought that was, uh, you know, what we call uh, esprit d'escalier, the spirit of the staircase, the great remark you think of when you're leaving. Uh, But she was so witty and so good on her feet and had spent, you know, all those years debating with her father that I think she probably said it. And he says, all right. So he gives her permission to stay in Berlin. So it's a second amazing act of, of rebellion. And I had to figure out, why did she pick Berlin instead of, say, Warsaw? And I think it was because, again, I don't have evidence, but I think it was because Berlin was the most liberal Jewish community in Europe, whereas Warsaw was very Hasidic at that point, so very traditionally religious and spiritual and not the way she, she was as a person. How is it
2: that she's able to support herself? Did she have enough money to work? She had the
0: inheritance from her mother.
2: Did she have any.
0: uh, Money from her mother.
2: Did she have any additional means of supporting herself over her life?
0: In Berlin, she invents a way to support herself. And this was, uh, you know, in those years, there is no such thing as central heating, so people heat their homes with cold. Stoves or fireplaces and you would close the entire house for the winter and the result would be a lot of unpleasant odors so she invents a perfumed paper that if you burned it you know kind of like incense it would give off a pleasant smell and she will support herself for the next oh 10 or 15 years by selling that perfumed paper so that's in addition to her inheritance <laughs>
2: So what is she doing during her time in Berlin?
0: She's uh, doing a lot of reading. She said, I was reading uh, modern books, not, not ancient dead books. And by that, she meant the Bible. So Berlin was a big center of modern reading. And one of the things, you know, we take so for granted today is how accessible literature is. But in those years, books are very expensive, and most people would read the Bible over and over throughout their entire life. But Berlin had reading groups, it had libraries, and it had subscription societies where you could pay a small fee and, you know, get a book for a week or so or a month. So she's she's reading, and that's where she encounters uh, what we call the enlightenment, you know, the idea that things can change, that you should question traditional values, um, that uh, reason is paramount over tradition, and she is an enlightenment thinker for the rest of her life. And she said she questioned, uh, just as she had questioned religion, now she began to question uh, society. You know, why should there be... a monarch with absolute power? Why should uh, people be born into certain castes in society like the aristocracy and have privileges over other people? And at some point uh, in her early life, she says, I would love to live in a republic, which is a, a, a government without a monarch. Now, the only republic in Europe was Switzerland. And she begins to think about the United States of America.
2: Now, she does eventually come to the United States, but before that, she spends some very important years in England. I was wondering if you could describe that period of her life and how it was that, how it shaped her as a person.
0: Sure. Well, en route to England, she stops in Paris and she's in paris for what's called the revolution of 1830 which overthrows a a very conservative monarch who wanted to be absolute and replaces him with a liberal monarch and she says that she didn't believe in monarchy but you know the liberal was better than the conservative and then she goes on to england and there conflicting accounts of when she goes and exactly how she goes. She says she was in a shipwreck. And there is a website on shipwrecks in the English Channel. And I couldn't find one that fit the right time. But she ends up in London, which was far and away the largest city in the Western world. And um, she has her perfumed paper. She has an English dictionary. She was wonderful at languages. At home, she spoke Yiddish, Polish, and Hebrew. She then learns German, French, and finally English. So in London, she supports herself two ways. She takes her You know, perfumed paper, she goes to various pharmacies and gives it to them on consignment. So they'll sell it and give her the money. And she also gives language lessons in both German and Hebrew. And that's where she begins to meet uh, different people. And London, in those years, uh, this would be the early 1830s, was the center of reform movements, of radical thinkers. Uh, you know, Jerry McBentham is there, the greatest good of the greatest number. And uh, she uh, visits uh, prisons with a woman named Elizabeth Fry, who's trying to reform prisons. And this is where she meets... The person she called her, her second father, uh, Robert Owen, and that's going to be a tremendous influence for her entire life. Owen was a real uh, character. He goes out to work when he's 10, which is standard in those years if you weren't wealthy, and by 20, he's running the largest textile factory in the British Isles. And he has a different philosophy of how to do that. He treats his workers very well. He builds schools for their children. He builds good housing for them. He tries to discourage drunkenness. And he rewards them for good behavior. And he made a fortune so a lot of people go up to Scotland to visit his factory to see how he does it. He was invited to address the houses of Congress in 1824-25 because he's such a celebrity. And in the late 1820s, he becomes increasingly radical. He tried to get um, early child labor outlawed in England. He doesn't want children to go to work before they're 10. They were sending them out at five. And he doesn't get a single vote in Parliament. And that radicalizes him. So he becomes a socialist. He believes that capitalism is a form of slavery. He becomes completely against religion. The Church of England was incredibly conservative in those years. If you were a Christian, you could only get married in the Church of England, whether you were a Roman Catholic or a uh, you know, another kind of Protestant. And um, he, you know, is against religion, he's against property, and he's against traditional marriage. And he, in the early 1830s, forms a labor union. Labor unions were illegal in England in those years. And he creates what was called the Grand National Consolidated Trades Union. And uh, it's outlawed by the British government a few months after it's formed, but it, it has close to a million members. And it's in those years that Ernestine Rose meets him. And there's a whole group of Owenites who gather around and meet every Sunday morning when churches were in session and hold their own meetings and dances and give speeches. And this group was especially hospitable to women. You know, women were just considered to be men's adjuncts in these years. You you know, you weren't supposed to speak in public. You didn't have any political role, of course. But in Owenism, they do. So this is where she begins to speak in public. And there are accounts of her talking with a, a thick foreign accent, but as a very effective speaker. And... When she's reminiscing about it in a later interview, she said that after she spoke, she had to wash all the cups and saucers from the tea that was served to the entire audience. So it's still a woman's role to some degree. But that's where she becomes the future speaker and political activist that she was going to be. And it's also where she meets her husband.
2: Uh I was fascinated by the story of her husband because it seemed – I mean, he he seems very modern in a lot of ways. At at a time where you describe these – this growing, what we would nowadays call Victorian gender divide among respectable classes. He is perfectly willing to be the one who works and supports her as she goes out and uh, undertakes these reform campaigns.
0: Right. Well, um, I – really was hoping to find out a fair amount about him. My original field was British history, and I knew that the British had started a census in 1801. William was born in 1813. However, I did not know that until 1841, they only counted people they didn't list their names, they didn't list their parents, they didn't list what parish they came from. So I I was able to find out virtually nothing about him. He was a silversmith and he was an Owenite. So they meet in the movement and fall in love and they were deeply in love for their entire lives. I mean, he, there's one letter from him and he's, semi literate, you know, he he can't spell, but he talks he mentions twice my dear Ernestine in that letter, which is from eighteen forty. And um they decide to get married, but how are they going to get married? They won't go to a church, but they need something that's more or less legal. So they hire a notary public to come to his apartment, and he testifies that they have sw- you know, sworn that they will be husband and wife. And then uh, a lot of the Owenites in these years uh, tried to find f- uh, found communities, communes, that would perpetuate Owen's beliefs, both in England and in the United States. So Ernestine and William decide to sail with a group of Owenites from London to New York City. And on the voyage, which took almost a month, it was a sailing ship, not a steamship yet, um, Ernestine writes that they realized that their you know, co-sailors were not prepared to live in a commune. So they, in effect, jump ship in New York City, and they're gonna live there for the next uh, 33 years. So she's really a New Yorker. And uh, they set up house with uh, living above William's store, and Ernestine sells her perfume paper in the store as well. And that's the beginning of their American life.
2: I have to confess, it's difficult in a way for me to think of Ernestine as a New Yorker, given how much she traveled. Uh, and, and he, he, this was the, the dawning of the age of railroads. But, but even then you're still talking about a, a lot of time on the road, a lot of time, uh, away speaking at various causes. And, and she seems to lead such an itinerant life in America.
0: Yes, but she always comes back to New York City, and there were two ways that they financed her travels. One was William working in the store, and the other, and this was really quite amazing, was they they did not have a servant. Now, Every, every family above the working class level had at least one servant to do the dirtiest chores. You know, to empty chamber pots, to do the laundry, to carry ashes out, to do the scrubbing. But they never had a servant. So they both did housework. And that is amazingly modern again. You know. Uh, and I was he. I'm sorry, she stays in New York, you know, her entire time in the United States.
2: I was wondering if you could explain uh, for now, what were some of the causes for which she began to campaign? What drew her to those causes and what her relationship was with some of the other leading uh, reform campaigners of that time in America?
0: Well, um, again, this was something I learned uh, in, in these years, the 1830s and early 1840s, the British government is still incredibly conservative. So English radicals, tended to come to New York, and there's a fairly substantial Owenite community in New York City. So she hooks up with them, or the Roses hook hook up with them very early on, and Ernestine begins debating on the Owenite stage, you know, again, every Sunday morning, uh, arguing in favor of socialism. And to me, this was a little odd because, of course, they're running a store, you know, but, you know, uh, you know, people who believe in socialism often have to live in capitalist societies and earn a living. So that didn't seem too contradictory. Her first independent political action, and this she starts in the winter of 1836, and they only got here like in May of 1836, is she has a petition for married women's property rights. And again, this is a very capitalist cause, but when if a woman was single, she could own property and she could keep property that was given to her, or that she inherited. But the second she married... Everything she owned, including her pocketbook, belonged to her husband. And there are police reports from this era that say one purse property of Mr. Henry Fawcett. Right. So she goes around lower Manhattan in her broken English uh, trying to get women to sign a petition for property rights. And she said she got one signature a month. And those were the first causes she's she's involved in. The next uh, major thing is, uh, again, I didn't know this. Uh, the big event in the Owenite movement was to celebrate the birthday of Thomas Paine, the same Thomas Paine who wrote Common Sense. But it's not for that reason. It's because he wrote a book called The Age of Reason, which argued that all religions are false, and they are plots against the common man, and they should be overthrown. And I think I have a quote from Mark Twain in the book that it took a brave man to say he had read the Age of Reason before the Civil War. So Thomas <laughs> Paine was born on January twenty ninth and Rose complains at some point, I wish he'd been born in a warmer time of the year. And very early on they had I mean, they started they had celebratory banquets and they invite um William to the banquet and Ernestine and the other wives for dancing afterwards and they don't like this and Ernestine organizes a rival banquet where women are invited to the entire event and one year two are held and then the next year hers takes over and she'll in a few years become the president of the evening and preside over the whole proceedings. So that's where she begins her political activity
2: that that uh, that what you just described uh, strikes me is as, as sort of the uh, a, th- a very interesting dynamic which she faces, which is like she can't simply pursue one cause because she's she's campaigning on behalf of socialism, for example, and then she, in the process of doing so, encounters these restrictions. So she has to address that, and then that right. leads her to issues of. Of, of oppression more generally, and so she becomes more involved in the abolitionist movement. It, it, it's like there's there's so many causes for her to address, and she can't really focus upon one because it would, in, in effect, you know, she then she carries the constraints of all the others.
0: Right. Well, she she basically gives up socialism, but she gets involved in free thought, you know, and atheism, in in anti slavery, and in women's rights, and those are her three big causes. And that's when she begins to meet allies. Uh, and she meets other women uh, who are fighting for married women's property rights. She meets a woman named Paulina Wright Davies, and she meets Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So that's the, the beginning of a woman's movement in the 1840s.
2: Now, you describe her life within the dynamic of this reform movement and the changes that take place within it. Could you explain how her activism evolved during this period in terms of how the abolitionist movement emerged, how it dealt with the political issues of the 1850s? Did she find that she was being Uh, sort of driven by events, or was she increasingly shaping, you know, making her own determinations about priorities and focusing her energies that way?
0: Well, I think she was basically inspired by Owenism, and she continually quotes an Owenite saying. She said, uh, black and white, male and female, all are equal, all deserve human rights. So she really makes no distinctions. And uh, I read a very interesting piece on the Owenite movement in New York City in these years, and it was very racist. There were a lot of white Owenites who didn't want to sit next to a black person, for instance. And she is not at all racist. Um, She shares a platform with black speakers from Sojourner Truth to Frederick Douglass. And she's just convinced that Slavery is wrong, and uh, blacks are completely equal to whites. In the 1860s, she's at a conference, and a black abolitionist makes a speech, William Wells Brown, and she says, that is the best speech of the convention, and I will pay to have it printed and put on the desk of every member of Congress to prove that black people can take care of themselves. So she is, you know, totally committed as an abolitionist. And again, a lot of the abolitionists in this period were very racist. They wanted blacks to go back to Africa if they were free. Um, And in fact, when Sojourner Truth meets with Abraham Lincoln, that's what he suggests. Uh, and she's, or, or rather, with Frederick Douglass meets with Lincoln, and Douglass says, "My family's been here for six generations. What do you mean, go to, go back to Africa? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, um, and of course it was it, it, it uh, was anti-slavery that splits as a movement over the question of could women participate equally. Uh, there's a big anti-slavery uh, convention in London in 1840, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton goes there in our honeymoon, and Lucretia Mott leads a delegation of women delegates from the United States, and they're not allowed to take their seats. And there's a whole debate, and it's decided that women can't be delegates. And the anti-slavery society of the United States splits over the issue of, can women participate equally? And the far larger and more powerful group says, no. So that's one of the real origins of an American women's rights movement, and that's something that propels Rose to do women's rights. Now, one of the difficult things I had to explain was I think most Americans today have heard of Seneca Falls in 1848, which is the first women's rights convention. But it's very small. It's very local. The only people who come are people who live in the immediate area of Seneca Falls, which is way upstate in New York. And what starts... What Rose participates in are the first national conventions of women's rights, which are much less known today. And in 1850, the first national convention is held in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is a growing city. And that's where she participates, speaks, and comes to the fore. She was an excellent speaker very funny, uh, she knew her audience, she didn't talk too long, and she could really rouse rouse a group.
2: You describe her in these debates, and, and one of the things you, you talk about is her, and you quote uh, contemporary reports of those debates, as to how uh, effective her argumentation was. And it brought me back to that uh, in my, as I was reading, it brought me back to that early part of the book where you have that rigorous, uh, you know, study of the Torah. You have the, you know, that that, that intellectual uh, disciplining that she uh, learned a, a, as a child, and and how it really seems to have been an important part of her arsenal. She may not have had the best, you know, perfect English in terms of, uh, in terms of speaking without an accent, but she made her arguments so uh, effectively that people are constantly commenting on that.
0: Right. And I also think what's important is her sense of humor. You know, in that first speech, uh, she says, man, uh, is, you know, is supposed to have a property in his wife. Well, he also has a property in his horse, you know. <laughs> um, and this uh, one of the problems she had in the women's movement, and to some degree in abolition, is she's not at all religious. And both these movements were very, very Christian. So um, she's not going to come out as a major atheist in these venues, but she meets a, a lovely woman who is a a christian abolitionist and she the woman says to her i think i will meet you in heaven one day and ernestine rose says then i will say what a mistake i made and you will (laughs) congratulate me you know so she's she's humorous and uh that goes a long way um in this period. But yes, she's a wonderful arguer. And as I say, she mutes her her atheism in groups that are going to be very much against it. It wasn't until I did this research that I realized how religious the women's movement was. They often began with a hymn and a prayer. Uh, There's a lot of debate about, does the Bible support women's rights? And Rose says, "Women's rights precede the Bible. They're older than the Bible. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you don't need to be justified by the Bible." And
2: uh, did did she uh, did the her contemporaries uh, that that she worked with people like Elizabeth C. Stanton were they? Uh, Aware of her atheism or did she try to mute it around them in order to avoid that type of conflict
0: well she was aware they were aware of it but she doesn't really uh, speak much about it when she's in their, those meetings I mean the picture I have of Stanton in these years shows her with a giant cross around her neck um, Stanton becomes much less religious as she ages but um, you know, they just – it was a very, very Christian movement, and so was abolition. You know, the most of the abolitionists say Jesus was against slavery. You know, I mean, that's the kind of argument they make.
2: You have this interesting description of what uh, – of, of the success in a way of, of – in many ways of, of the abolition campaign with the Civil War, and yet you point out the, the paradox that you – one of – uh, of Rose's campaigns has this enormous success, but in 1865, slavery is abolished, and yet you describe that it, 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 rather than being a, a, a triumph that will lead to other triumphs, it in many ways deals a body blow to so many other causes.
0: It's, it's such a, t- a shame. It, it splits the women's movement for almost 30 years, and that's the issue of, as Wendell Phillips, who was a, a leading white abolitionist, said, now is the Negro's hour, and what he meant was the black man's hour and it's time for black men to get the vote. And Sojourner Truth, you know, a black female abolitionist, said, if you give men the vote and not women, things are going to remain exactly the same. And she and Rose and Lucretia Mott and other women, Stanton as well, are arguing that now is the time to give every adult the vote in the United States. And Rose makes a wonderful speech saying, White men are a minority in this country. White women, black men, and black women are the majority. You know, and you can't just give the vote to men, but it doesn't work. So black men are enfranchised, women are not, and that's the 15th Amendment. And the women's movement splits between those primarily New Englanders, who say, yes, now is the black man's hour. And those like Rose and others who say, no, it now is the time. You have to give everybody the vote. If you don't, women aren't going to get the vote for another 50 years. And they were right.
2: Was it the split that led her to return to England, or did she go back to England for other reasons?
0: very hard to say. Um, As far as I can tell, it certainly contributed to it. Uh, So, too, did her debate with the editor of the Atheist newspaper, which has the very closeted name of the Boston Investigator, where he uh, comes out against Jews, and she argues in favor that Jews are human beings like everybody else. Uh, And it's also her health. And one of the interesting things is in those years, if women got sick, they were supposed to rest. And certainly most women (laughs) certainly needed a rest. Uh, But men were supposed to travel for their health. And she and William decide to go to England, they say, to restore her health. And when they go back to England, they go to various spas and, uh, you know, resorts. And her health gets better so it's a number of reasons uh they come back to the united states in 1874 and they're planning to stay for a while but she gets very very sick deathly ill and i've got a close friend actually the guy who traveled to poland with me who's a doctor and i said can you diagnose her and i gave him all the symptoms and she said it's just too vague to diagnose what she had um So they go back to England, and she lives there for the rest of her life. Now, William was English, so he may have been a factor in this.
2: As you describe, she lives for nearly uh, two more decades.
0: Yes. Uh,
2: Was she she in retirement in England, or was she still uh, engaged with the various reform movements that she had committed so much of her life to?
0: She's very active um, from the time they return, which is 1869, until 1878, and she's active in two movements in England. Of course, they didn't have an anti-slavery movement there. They had a free thought movement and women's rights, and she speaks for both of them, and um, travels and goes to various conventions and conferences. She speaks in Edinburgh as well as London, and um, then her health fails. And uh, the last speech she gives in public is in Paris in 1878. So she's kind of in retirement, but she has a lot of friends in both the free thought and women's rights communities. And that's who really sustains her when William dies.
2: Uh, you, you describe how at the, in, uh, in, in her, in her later years about how I think it was Stanton came to England and how, mm-hmm. uh, she, they, they visited and how, uh, Stanton wanted, uh, Rose to come back to the United States for a visit. And it was really, uh, I, I, I thought, you know, touching in, in a way and also just a little sad the idea that, you know, she, she's so, beloved by so many people in the movement they they wanted to be everywhere. And she just can't quite, you you know, she's no longer that position where she's able to do all that traveling that she's done and all that engagement that she's done over so much of her life.
0: Right. Well, even with a steamship in those years, uh, you know, a voyage across the Atlantic was about, you know, two weeks. So she, she doesn't feel up to it. And once William dies, she said she wants to be buried in the same grave. And, uh, Again, that struck me as poignant in an atheist, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, she's, she's, she's still a personage, you know, I mean, there are accounts of her, um, you know, going to Brighton in the summertime and sitting, she can only use a wheelchair at that point, but sitting by an open window and having pennies on the windowsill and anybody who needs money, she, she gives a penny to, and she's still fighting her free thought battles because in those years, ardent Christians decided that they could convert atheists on their deathbed. So a, uh, a missionary student sends her, uh, you know, a letter saying, "Now that you're old and sick, I think you'll convert to Christianity." And she says, "Nonsense!" And she sends him her speeches, and he sends them back ripped up, you know. <laughs> And when she is dying, actually, she's very afraid that someone will come and try to convert her. And she has the daughter of her very close friend in the free thought movement, who's unfortunately died, uh, the man, Charles Bradlaugh, but the daughter, she wants her to be with her. And the daughter doesn't make it, but she has a doctor and a, and a, a servant who protect her from that kind of conversion.
2: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Well, I joke that my books are getting smaller and smaller. You know, first I wrote all of women's history, then I wrote about 30 years, then I wrote about one life. And my next project is going to be a family memoir. Uh, Both sides of my family came to this country in the middle of the 19th century. uh, And both my parents wrote memoirs. My father was a songwriter. He wrote the words to Body and Soul, which is a jazz classic. And uh, I really want to do a family history
2: Well, Uh, that sounds like a great project. I look forward to reading it when it comes out.
0: Me too. Well, I haven't (laughs) quite started it yet, but that's my next project.
2: Well, Bonnie Anderson, thanks for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: You too. Thank you very much.